just keep your, keep your place in Psalm 51. We're going to spend the, the majority of our time there this morning. Come in, come in. Weary travellers. <laughs> so we're at the end of the year. And it is the time where we all start to look at the year ahead and plan what changes we're going to make, what things we're going to do, what instruments we're going to learn, what diets we're going to go on, what... <laughs> I see... <laughs> Elaine just rolled her eyes. <laughs> but, I mean, we do, we do it, don't we? We're like, right, last year, let's, let's write 2023 off, let's think about 2024, and we're going to make a change. Just like Michael Jackson looking at the man at the mirror, I'm going to make that change. I'm going to do it. I'm going to lose the weight. Claire's already at me. She's already at me. We're starting intermittent fasting when? Tomorrow. Anybody else starting their diet tomorrow? Yeah? Sometimes tomorrow doesn't come. Do you know that? (laughs) Who's done this? Who's done this? I'm going to start my diet on the 1st of Jan. Therefore, I now have license... To eat whatever I want because I'm going to... Every year it's the same thing. We start to make these New Year's resolutions. And ultimately, when we think about them, you can break them down into two categories. And really it's to do with our well-being. It's to improve something in our lives. That's why we do them. I don't think anybody sets off with a New Year's resolution to say, I'm going to eat um, junk food, more junk food. Or I'm going to do something worse. We want to improve ourselves, improve our situation, you know, to lose weight, exercise more, quit the bad habits. Or it's a goal to improve our circumstances, maybe. You know, just like learn something new, make a career move, whatever it may be. Um, start to be more wise with our finances or, or whatever it may be. But all these goals can be summed up into one major goal. And the major goal is that man wants to be content. Humanity, we want to be content. We want to be happy in and of ourselves. Now, the issue with that is, biblically speaking, practically speaking, that can never happen unless the relationship we have with the Lord is where it should be. And, and that goes for anybody here this morning, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord or before the Lord this morning, that actually the ultimate um, place that you can be is in fellowship with the Lord, walking with him, and there, as this, David writes in the Psalms, there is uh, pleasures forevermore. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? There's contentment. There's peace. In the presence of Jesus. Let me show you this. Right. What is it? Just to make sure you're awake. It's a spider's web. Okay. Fascinating. Spiders are fascinating creatures. Who likes spiders? Yes. I like spiders. Do you know why? I hate flies. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But they're fascinating. And the spider's web is, is, is a masterpiece of engineering. It's a masterpiece of engineering. And you can see the complexity of it. And you know, we know how spider webs work, don't we? The fly can lie 
anywhere in that web and immediately the spider is alerted to the presence of that fly and it can make its way down. It does this because of all the interconnections in the web. And, and that's a marvel. And if you ever sit and watch a fly when it's stuck, it, it's, it's just amazing. But what's the most important parts? What are the most important parts of that spider's web? Now, bear in mind, it's a, it's a, it's a myriad of, of, of complexity in the engineering. It's beautiful. But where's the most important part? Where it's connected to. Why? That's its foundation. Without those uh, anchor points, that marvel of engineering is useless. It will never fulfill its purpose. It will never serve its purpose. It will never be strong and stable. Now, our lives are like that. That each and every one of us has a complexity of relationships around us that are all interconnected, that one affects another. And as we walk in this, we, we, you know, we upset one person and it ripples effects. We do one good thing and that ripple effects. That we're working in this complex myriad of relationships. And we go about it and try and do this and do that. But the most important relationship is not the, the, the horizontal it's the vertical relationship with God because that is the structure, that is the stability that holds everything else together. Without these points attached to the branches, this would be a mess. Useless. Not finding its full form and function. So what I'm saying to you this morning is that the one relationship that is more important than any other relationship, above all and beyond any relationship you have this morning. Let me say that again so you get it. The one relationship that is more important than any other relationship that you have, look beside you, look behind you, more important than anything, more important than your wife or your husband, your brother, your sister, your friend, your employer, your pastor, the most important relationship, the essential relationship is with your God. And when we get that, we get the points, the anchor points for everything else in life. The problem is we're stuck in the myriad of all these relationships and we miss the most important thing. And in that respect, the spider is more wise than us. The spider protects those anchor points. He makes sure that the web is anchored to the branch. And Jesus taught this, didn't he? I am the vine. Without me, you can do what? Say that again. What does that mean? Do we live like that? Silence. <laughs> right? But that's it. This is the most important relationship. So what I want to talk about this morning is not New Year's resolutions. They're not that they're bad things. It's a good thing to have goals in life. But I want to focus this in on the most important relationship. And that relationship is not about resolutions, it's about restoration. It's about walking in Christ, knowing Him first and foremost, but also then walking in that truth. So what I want to really speak about and speak into this morning is those that are in a place where the relationship with the Lord Jesus is not what it should be. And that's why I want to take us to Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 
is written by King David. Now, we're not going to go into it because a lot of you will know it. But for those of you who don't know, King David has been a naughty boy. King David has done something he shouldn't have. King David has, has uh, been with another man's wife. He's committed sin. And that sin leads to further consequences. And, and it's a whole snowball effect, as sin usually is. And King David is, is in a place where he's, let's use the word, backslidden. His relationship with God isn't what it should be. Think about the spider's web. He's in the midst of this complexity because of all these effects that, he's, that have, have taken place because of his sin and all these relationships and all this involvement. But his anchor point with the Lord is not where it should be. He's not in a good place. And the Lord intervenes and sends Nathan the prophet to come and speak to David. Tells David this little parable, this little, little, little uh, uh, story to uh, hit the heart. Talking about how a rich man, and I'm, I'm condensing this down this morning, how a rich man oppresses a poor man and uses his privilege and, and takes from him. And David is enraged. And of course, it's just a parable pointing to the real-life story of, of David, who's done the very same thing. And Samuel says to him, you're that man, David. You're that man. And that point of realization of what David has done and who he's become hits him. And he's broken because of his sin. And then he writes Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is part of a, a little set of psalms that are called the repentant psalms, a penitent psalms. And David writes this out of a heart of repentance. And when I think about this, when, I, when we read this, and this is the beautiful, beautiful thing about Scripture, is that we read this, but we can, we can unpack it and we can add uh, flesh to it and think about David as he writes this. This is on his heart. I absolutely believe that this is penned with tears. That King David writes this out of his brokenness. And it's a beautiful psalm that helps us see what true uh, restoration looks like and how we go about it. So no matter where we are in our relationship with the Lord, this can be useful to us whenever things aren't right. So we want to just quickly go through Psalm 51. We, we want to have a, a look at it. As David, remember, he's confronted with a sin and he starts to write under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost also. So God wants this in here for us. And we can read it thousands of years later. And we can connect with it. And we can apply it to our lives. Here's the first thing I want you to see from Psalm 51. We, we really deal with David's petition. And he says there in verse number one, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. This is David's appeal. So he comes before the Lord, he brings his petition, and the first one and two we have his appeal. What's his appeal for? Mercy. 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 David doesn't come to God and bargain. 
David doesn't come to God and say, Lord, you know that I'm your anointed. You know I'm a man after your own heart. You know that I've done good things. Would you give me a break on this? Would you just turn your eye away from me on this one? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He pleads for mercy. He appeals to God's infinite mercy and love. Have mercy upon me according to thy loving kindness. Not according to what I've done. Not according to who I am. Not according to anything about me. He says, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. He doesn't bargain with God because he knows he's got nothing to offer in this transaction. There's a story told about a mother who came to Napoleon on behalf of her son. The son was about to be executed. And the mother asked Napoleon to issue a pardon, but Napoleon pointed out that it was the man's second offence and justice demanded death. It said that she replied, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon objected, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the mother replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. Her son was granted the pardon. See, when we plead for mercy, we have nothing that we can bring into that argument. We simply cry out to God, and this is David's appeal, have mercy upon me. Notice in verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He understands that this unconfessed sin is a barrier before him and God, that he's been defiled by it, that his relationship with God isn't right because God is holy, God is just, he is perfectly right. And David is in a place where he has defiled himself because of his sin. And he knows there's nothing he can do to make himself clean. He has to go to God. That's his appeal for mercy. Look at his admission in verse number three. For I acknowledge my transgressions. Now, I tell you what, we could all learn from this. All of us. Because here's what we're experts at. All of us. We're experts at identifying each other's sins and not acknowledging our own. But here's the reality. We have to own our sin. We have to acknowledge that actually they were my choices. I did that. It wasn't the devil. It wasn't other people. It wasn't the world. Situation, circumstance, it was me. It was my sin. And that's what David admits. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his transgressions. And then he says this, my sin is ever before me. Spurgeon said that God doesn't allow his children to sin successfully. And there's a lot of truth in that. When I became a born-again Christian, I tried to sin, but I never did it successfully, I can tell you that. It was always a misery. It wasn't like it was before. That's the presence of God. 
David says, my sin is ever before me. And I like to think of this as this a simple illustration that helps with this. Because God, we'll put God over here. God is the source of all light. He's pure light. And when we're walking towards God, we're walking towards the light. And the closer we get to him, the more we reflect that light. That's seen in people's walk with the Lord. And repentance, you know, has an idea of change of mind, change of heart, but there is a turning concept with repentance. Because when we're in sin, we're not walking towards the Lord, we're not walking in the Spirit, we're walking in the flesh, so we're walking that direction. And if God, the source of light, is behind us, what's in front of us? Our shadow. Our shadow. And David says, my sin's ever before me. No matter where I go, I see it. Because when we're not walking towards God, we're walking away from God, and that's what is in front of us. And as Spurgeon said, God doesn't allow us to sin successfully. That the conscience, the Holy Spirit within us also reminds us of that sin. We know what we've done wrong. We know it's before us, and it's always on our mind in front of us. David says, it's ever before me. This is where repentance comes in, that we start to turn. And when we turn to God and start to walk towards him and receive forgiveness and cleansing, we can't see the shadow behind us. There are no shadows when we walk towards the Lord in front of us. So David here acknowledges his sin, that he is a sinner. Verse 4, he says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. That all sin, first and foremost, is against God. Yes, there are others that are affected. But this sin is an attack on the anchor points of that spider's web. The others that are affected, yes, but first and foremost, it's a sin against God. So God recognize, or David recognizes this. He goes on there and says, They might be justified, verse 4, when they speakest, be clear when they judgest. So David comes to God, he understands that it's his sin, he has to own it, that God is holy and just. There's nothing wrong with God. This is all on him. That he's guilty before a holy and just God. And that's an important thing to understand for all of us. That God is always right and righteous. He's never wrong. Not once, not ever. We, on the other hand, get it wrong a lot. That's David's admission. And then look at his acknowledgement, verse 5. He acknowledges that he's a sinner from birth. Not that his, the things that he's done have made him a sinner, but the things that he's done is an outworking of that sin nature that has been passed down from Adam, the first of us, all the way down through every generation we have inherited the curse and we sin. It's inside us. From birth to death, we know how to sin because it's in there. It's in there. David was in no doubt. This is what I want you to get. He was in no doubt of who he was. He isn't coming as some king 
that has the adoration of the people, that has money in the bank, that has power and prestige. He understands who he is before God. Prussian king Frederick the Great was once touring a, a Berlin prison. The prisoners fell on their knees before him to proclaim their innocence, as most prisoners do. Prisons are full of innocent men, are they not? It's said that there was one man who didn't protest his innocence. It simply said silent, and Frederick called him and asked him why he was there, and he said, I'm here because I committed a crime, armed robbery. Frederick said, are you guilty? The man replied, yes, indeed, your majesty, I deserve my punishment. It's said then that Frederick issued a pardon for that man and said to those around him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison while he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who occupy it. And I think that's where we are. We all think that we're not guilty, that actually, all right, we're not too bad, we're not as bad as the next guy. But in the light of God and who he is, we have to see who we are. And David was truly aware of this. He understands that God sees on the inside. That's what he says in verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts they shall make me to know wisdom. He's talking about that revelation that only comes from God, but also the fact that God sees your heart. And that is horrifying. Horrifying. That there is one that sees every thought of your heart. That scares the living daylights out of me. Because I know my heart. I know it. You know your heart. You know the thoughts and intents. You know the things that come up. God sees that. He sees that. That's horrifying. But when we see that he sees it, we understand that we can come to him with nothing. No good works. No good hands. We simply have to plead for mercy. See, this psalm, as much as anything else, it's an awareness of who we are as human beings. All of us. And that's David's petition in those first six verses. That leads us then on to his prayer in verse number 7 to 12. Here he's going to pray for reconciliation. He's going to pray for restoration. Look at verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than so. Now there's a ceremonial aspect of this from the Old Testament, but also I want you to understand he's Picturing, because all the Old Testament pictures around the Levitical system, around the Levitical sacrifices, are pictures of Christ, the one true, final, full sacrifice for all. And as David speaks about this washing, he's pointing forward to the blood of Christ that cleanses us and washes us from all sins. He's pleading for reconciliation. Not of anything he's done himself, but all about God. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins, blot out all mine iniquities. 
reconciliation. Then there's a prayer also for restoration. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones that thou hast broken may rejoice. I love that. This connected in this relationship with God, understanding that David's made these choices, but yet God is sovereignly sitting over that. Make me to hear joy. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And you've got to feel this desperation in David's heart. He understands who he is. And when we understand who we are, it should re- reveal a desperation for God to help us. We change that word, for God to save us. Because when we open this old heart up, we don't like what we see. We know we're in trouble with God. All of us know that. There's not a single atheist in the world, I believe. Plenty of suppressors of truth, which is what I think Romans teaches. We know we're wicked inside. David prays for restoration, for reconciliation, for God to renew your right spirit within him, to fix him, to help him, because he's helpless. Verse 11, Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's appealing, he's saying, God, don't take this away from me. Now remember, he's been backslidden. And now he's talking to God, he's honestly confessing, and then he says, don't, don't go away from me. What does that mean? It means that God was there, even when David wasn't. And here in his heart's prayer, he's saying, Lord, the worst thing you can do is, is, is leave me. It's desperation for the presence of God. I think the church has lost this. We've lost it. Let me take you back to the spider web. Desperation that we are anchored to him. Because without that, we're just blown in the wind. Tossed to and fro on every wind of doctrine. Where is our desperation for the presence of God? Where was that this morning when we woke up? Where will that be tomorrow morning when we wake up? Where is that going to be in 2024? As a church, are we going to be desperate to be close with God? Because if we're not, nothing is going to happen here. We'll just meet and we'll smile and we'll go our separate ways. There will be no transformation. Because we need, we need him. We need him. David understands this. He says, God, don't, don't go away from me. And then he says this, verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Now, I want you to notice this. He does not say, restore my salvation. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. What does this mean? This is eternal security. This is a hell that I will die to defend. This is a hell that this church will fight for. That Jesus is sufficient. That his grace 
is once for all, forever, for those that have come. There are those that will teach against us today that will bring something else in. This is not based on works. This is not perseverance of the saints. This is simply the grace of God. And David says, not restoring to me my salvation. He says, restoring to me the joy of my salvation. What does that mean? It means when a relationship as believers is not right with God, we lose the joy of that salvation. Why? Our sin is ever before us. We're not looking at God because we don't want to look at God. Why? Because when we look at God, we see ourselves, we see our sin, we see who we are. When we're walking that path away from God, there's no joy in it. I mean, let me say this to you this morning, and I mean this in love. If you can walk that path of sin, and there's joy in that for you, I want to say to you this morning, there's a good chance you've never known God as your Savior. Now, I'm not saying how long that path lasts. Remember what Spurgeon said, God doesn't allow his children to sin successfully. I've tried to walk that path of sin as a believer, and honestly, it was miserable. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. That's David's prayer. And as he prays this, then he goes on, verse 13, and this is David's promise. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways. Notice notice the order of things here. Get the anchor points right. Get the relationship right. Then go and teach others. Then show others Christ. Don't know about you. (laughs) Oh dear. Confessional time. But I know sometimes that I have had the audacity to tell others about Christ, to try and preach others to others about Christ when I know that my relationship with him hasn't been right. Folks, that is a waste of time. Waste of time. It's dishonouring to the Lord. It's hypocritical. But how often do we do it? That we're carrying about this besetting sin in our own life and we come alongside a brother and sister in Christ and we cozy up to them and, and we talk to them about God and his grace and his mercy and how that if we walk in his will, that's the safest place to be. And yet... We're walking a very different path. Here the scripture tells us, and David says, I'm going to get myself before you, Lord. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to understand that there's nothing I can do to change it, that I need you, and you're going to restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I'm going to be in a right relationship with you. The anchor points are going to be right, and then I can go into the myriad of life and teach others thy way. David's promise that he would direct people onto God in verse 13. Then verse 14 to 17, he goes on to say that he'll declare praise unto God. Verse 17, this beautiful verse, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. It's beautiful. God sees in here. And David knows this. He knows that God is the Redeemer. God is the only one that can restore him. 
that can bring that joy, that can bring the reconciliation, the restoration. And it has to be God. God has to show mercy. David deserves nothing. And because of that, receiving that from God, David will praise him and tell other people about him. Now, if that's not a message for us, we sit here saved by grace, that we're to be right with God, to have a right relationship with him, and ultimately then, because of that, have the joy in our salvation, and because of that, share and show others the Lord Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. So in Psalm 51, what do we have? We have David's confession. He wants to be in a right relationship with God. And his confession is made up of the three components that are essential in any confession before God. Number one, we have to see our sin for what it is. It's an offense before holy God. It's a barrier between us and God. Number two, we have to see God for who he is. Blameless, holy, righteous, just. The fault is not with God. It's with us. And that's the third point. We have to see ourselves for who we are. Sinners by nature. We have to take responsibility for our choices, our actions. I love Psalm 51, the personal pronouns in there. I acknowledge my sins. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity. I shall be clean. I, I, I. He knows it's him. He owns it. He took responsibility for his behavior. So the question this morning as we wrap these things up and think about this is, is where are you? Or let me rephrase that. Where were you in 2023 before the Lord? Because 2024 is a new year. And the past is the past and there's no future in it. There's nothing we can do about the year that's gone. It's gone. But what we can do something about is the year that lies ahead. So my question, are you burdened? Are you like David? Has God shown you something this morning? A sin that's ever before you that we don't know, that nobody else knows, but you know. God knows. And God in his grace and his mercy is willing and waiting for what? You to come unto him. To confess it, to bring it before him and say, God, I know who I am. I'm a sinner. And I know my sin has separated me from you. If you don't know my saviour this morning, that separation has no bridge. If you know him as Savior, God has, has forgiven you for those sins. He has, has applied his blood to you so that you're in a right standing with him. Now you have a relationship. But sin will still affect that relationship. It will never break that he is your father and, and you're his child. That's eternal security. Never broken. But relationship. And when we see sin, we see what it does. And then ultimately... We see God for who he is. I wonder if that's a place you're in this morning where God is showing you who he is, who you are, and what's in it. And the answer for us all, no matter where you are in that equation, no matter where you are, the answer is the same for each and every one of us. Number one, repent. Turn 
to God. Number two, confess. Own it. Say, God, I acknowledge it. I'm a sinner. I need you. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I am at your mercy. Save my soul. Restore my relationship with you. Whatever it is, that process is the same. And then God, being who he is, is gracious and merciful that he will receive you unto himself. And will give you salvation if you need it, but will also restore unto you the joy of that salvation if you need that too. That's how good God is. 1 John 1 9, Christian accident and emergency. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God. So as we enter into 2024, let's not think about New Year's resolutions. Let's think about New Year's restoration. Let's think about our anchor points to God. Are we in Him? Are we walking with Him? Are we in a different place altogether? The good news is that God in His mercy and in His grace is calling you this morning to come unto him. And he will give you salvation. He will restore unto you the joy of your salvation. He will walk with you and be your God. I wonder this morning as we close, if the Holy Spirit's challenging you, would you have those honest and open conversations with the Lord? Don't mess about with the one relationship it is more important than all. Make it right and enter into 2024 solid, secure, and full of the joy of your salvation.